Hello, Rebecca Mays here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. I want to acknowledge that this program was recorded on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. This episode of Stick Together was produced on Jarjarurung country and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. It is brought to you on your local community radio station thanks to the Community Broadcasting Foundation. This week we'll hear from Dave Fox from Bendigo Trades Hall Council about why we should care about Julian Assange and what we can do to bring him home. But first, some union news. On September 30, the Equal Times reported that coal industry workers in Australia are taking their destiny into their own hands. The coal industry is to Australia what the Second Amendment of the US Constitution is to the United States. It would be hard to imagine the country without it, with fossil fuels still accounting for 92% of Australia's energy mix, including 29% for coal in 2021. The industry is still vigorously defended by lobbies, even in parliamentary circles and the corridors of ministers. In the Hunter Valley, a region north of Sydney in the state of New South Wales, the local economy is still dominated by coal. From the mines to the cargo ships departing from the port of Newcastle, the industry directly and indirectly employs more than 17,000 people. Newcastle is the world's largest coal port, says Dr Liam Fellon, a researcher at the University of Newcastle, specialising in the uncertainties and risks of climate change. Coal mining has been a part of life here since white people arrived in Australia. For many years, mining projects were still supported and approved, not least by the Morrison government, which was widely condemned in Australia and around the world for its inaction on climate change. But the tides have begun to turn. In May 2022, voters ousted ScoMo and returned Labor to power. The new Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has promised to make Australia a renewable energy superpower and to reduce the country's CO2 emissions by 43% from 2005 levels by 2030 a target that the scientists of the Climate Change Authority nonetheless still consider to be insufficient. This begs the question of what role fossil fuels will play going forward and what will be the fate of the 50,000 direct jobs and 120,000 indirect jobs linked to Australia's coal industry. Leaving energy transition aside, the Australian coal industry has already seen its exports slow in recent years, partly as a result of the trade war with China since 2020, while domestic demand has shifted to cleaner energy sources which are gaining ground. According to Clean Energy Council's 2022 energy report, the Australian renewable energy industry accounted for 32.5% of Australia's total electricity generation in 2021, which represented an increase of almost 5 percentage points compared to 2020. Despite their windfall gains in recent months due to the gas crisis in Europe caused by the conflict in Ukraine, which has led to a sharp rise in global demand for coal, mining companies can see the writing on the wall and are already taking steps in anticipation of changes to the industry. In June, BHP announced that its Mount Arthur mine in the Hunter Valley would close by 2030, 15 years ahead of schedule, while earlier in the year it was revealed that the Uraring coal-fired power plant in Lake Macquarie would close by 2025, seven years earlier than planned. This means that New South Wales will see both its largest mine and its largest power station close in the space of eight years. 
Workers and the unions prefer to stay ahead of this transition, which is already proving faster than expected. I've gone back to university to study for a business degree, says Nathan Clements, a 27-year-old shop steward for the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, which represents 4,000 workers in the Hunter Valley, many of them employed by companies involved in coal production. For Nathan, who has spent the last seven years working for a company that maintains the machinery used in the mines, coal is something of a family affair. My father still works in it. My brother and friends have worked in it. When you go in, you're guaranteed a job, an income. It used to guarantee you a future, he says. But for some time, this future has felt increasingly uncertain. Like Nathan, who is doing his best to balance the 38-hour work week with his studies, many are considering returning to university to begin the process of retraining. As uncertainty over their future grows, workplace discussions amongst workers are becoming increasingly common. Today, it's easier to talk about the future of our professions, says Nathan, who also sees increasing awareness of global warming since the fires that took place in Australia in 2019 and 2020. But while workers are increasingly talking about climate change, their primary concern remains the prospect of a job and salary. In November 2020, Steve Murphy, National Secretary of the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, AMWU, and several environmental collectives founded the Hunter Jobs Alliance, a coalition of unions and environmental groups whose aim is to ensure a successful economic transition for the region. We're trying to make sure that the Hunter Valley has the support and programs in place to help employees affected by the change, while also creating new industries and ensuring that our region remains attractive says Warwick Jordan, coordinator of the Hunter Jobs Alliance. When it comes to job creation, the Alliance has no shortage of ideas. Electric bus manufacturing, building renovation, green aluminium smelters, offshore wind power and mine rehabilitation are among the sectors the organisation hopes the government will fund. The Alliance's goal is to move beyond the sometimes divisive debate on environmental action within the coal industry and act quickly to bring together unions from several trades to reimagine the region's future. A total of nine unions representing teachers, nurses, administrative and public sector employees and workers now make up the Alliance. Too much time was spent discussing the reality of global warming that should have been spent finding solutions to support employees and attract new industry, adds Warwick Jordan. The Hunter Jobs Alliance collects worker feedback through its member unions and organises workshops to better understand employees' fears and expectations. Despite the diversity of workers' backgrounds and differences of opinion on the subject, most people understand that change is coming, said Phelan of Newcastle University. Unions representing workers in the coal industry are generally not opposed to the realities of climate change. They know that the impending energy transition is inevitable. They just want to ensure that it is just. We're working politically at the state and federal level to ensure that just transition is enshrined into legislation, says Adrian Evans, Deputy National Secretary of the Maritime Union of Australia that represents coal port workers, among others. All the union representatives interviewed for this article agree that a just transition must involve, among other things, increasing resources to train employees to find work again, particularly in the renewable energy sector. We need to seize these opportunities and ensure that the benefits of renewable energy development are available to all, especially those who will be affected by the end of the old industries, says Michael Wright, Deputy National Secretary of the Electrical Trades Union, which represents 60,000 electricity sector workers in Australia. According to Wright, several thousand of his union members are already working in solar and wind power. 
While the state agency TAFE already provides funding for professionals in New South Wales, Phelan argues that it needs more government investment. You don't go and work on a wind farm overnight. We have the skills, but we really need more training, he adds. Another measure that unions have fought to see implemented is the creation of a local authority to coordinate transition efforts, which have already been established in several parts of Australia. Last year, the New South Wales government announced the creation of the Royalties for Rejuvenation Fund, a body that will receive $25 million Australian dollars a year to support transition initiatives, including in the Hunter Valley, explains Liam Phelan. A similar body, the Latrobe Valley Authority, has also been created in the state of Victoria. According to the Australian Council of Trade Unions, Australia's largest trade union centre, whose affiliates include many of the previously mentioned unions, the transition is entirely predictable and it is critical that government acts to support workers and communities impacted by the energy transition. Unions and their workers assure us that it is already underway and as Jordan of the Hunter Jobs Alliance says, we are only at the beginning. According to a report by the International Federation of Journalists on September 28th, police in Australia's Northern Territory have sought powers to raid the office of NT Independent after the digital news outlet released an article on the sexual assault of a minor, an incident suppressed by local police. The International Federation of Journalists joins its Australian affiliate, the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, in condemning this violation of press freedom and calling on the Territory's authorities to safeguard the right of journalists to report on matters in the public interest. In March 2021, NT Independent published an article on an incident of sexual assault committed against a minor in which the news outlet alleged that local police had deliberately avoided informing the public of the incident. The article prompted a series of investigative pieces alleging a pattern of attempted cover-ups by the police media unit of serious sex offences committed across the Territory. On September 25th, NT Independent revealed that police had sought authorisation to raid the news outlet's office, seize documents and computers and arrest staff by requesting that the Australian Classification Board categorise the article as restricted content. The request was ultimately rejected by the Board, though NT Independent foreshadowed that it would file a complaint against the police with an appropriate statutory authority. MEAA's National Media Section Committee of Elected Officials unanimously condemned the appalling actions of the NT police and the use of intimidation to restrict the publication of reporting in the public interest. Adam Portelli, media director of the MEAA, said, This is an extremely disturbing development that represents a dangerous pattern of behaviour in the Northern Territory. According to NT Independent editor Christopher Walsh, the actions of NT police reflected an effort to subvert laws protecting journalists from unlawful search and seizures or arrests. Adam Portelli said, The previous and the current chief ministers have locked out the NT Independent from reporting matters that are in the public interest. We call on the NT government and NT police to respect the rights of journalists and to cease impeding the public's right to know what our governments and their agencies do in our name. The International Federation of Journalists said Northern Territory Police's attempts to preclude journalists from reporting on matters in the public interest are deeply concerning and constitute an alarming infringement of press freedom. The IFJ urges the region's authorities to ensure that all journalists and media workers are free to work without fear of harassment, intimidation or reprisal. According to an article in the Newcastle Herald on October 30th, C. 
seafarers working on the 2,500 foreign registered freight ships that enter the port of Newcastle each year are being robbed an estimated $25 million a year, new research has found. The Australia Institute report robbed at sea, found some seafarers are getting paid as little as $2 an hour as a result of underpayment, the withholding of entitlements and the poor enforcement of Australian labour standards. The report used 10 years' data gleaned from the International Transport Workers' Federation, ITF, Australian Inspectorate, which conducted almost 5,000 inspections in Australian ports between 2012 and 2022. It found 70% of ships failed to meet minimum standards for wage payment and estimated foreign seafarers were being underpaid $65 million annually. This report shines a light into a dark corner of Australia's supply chain, Maritime Union of Australia Newcastle Branch Secretary Glenn Williams said. We're exploiting foreign workers who have no labour rights in the countries they come from, and this report shows that when they work in this country, they don't have any labour rights either. These guys are some of the most exploited workers on the planet. They are part of the Australian supply chain and this highlights how much wage theft is going on along our coastline. The report found large gaps between international and domestic labour standards governing international shipping. When combined with almost non-existent regulation of labour standards on ships involved in international trading and an uncertain and under-resourced domestic labour standards regulatory system, seafarers are exposed to widespread abuse. Mr Williams estimated only 2.5% of the 2,500 foreign registered freight ships that entered the port of Newcastle each year were subject to inspection. Evidence of wage theft was found on 70% of those ships. The Australian Maritime Safety Authority needs to be resourced and have people available to go down and do the inspections. They are doing their best but they don't have enough resources to be able to inspect every ship and ensure the workers on those vessels are being paid correctly, Mr Williams said. The report says seafarers on flag of convenience registered vessels usually come from low-wage developing countries with limited power to resist exploitation by unethical ship owners. The Maritime Union of Australia has backed calls for stronger rules in countries like Australia to protect vulnerable workers. The report also identifies several loopholes and enforcement failures that allow ship owners to routinely exploit seafarers even when delivering cargo from one Australian port to another. The ITF's Australian coordinator, Ian Bray, said that the recoveries and revelations captured by the report represented the tip of the iceberg. Ripping off workers' wages is usually indicative of broader issues and greater abuses. If a boss is willing to systematically steal their crew's wages, you can be sure there are other rorts going on, he said. Endemic wage theft within the international shipping sector is a massive problem, but there is clearly a disconnect between the various regulatory agencies and various port authorities when it comes to the enforcement of maritime labour standards. We hope these will be quickly addressed so that these abuses are identified, interrupted and prevented. The report makes 10 specific recommendations aimed at reducing the incidence of wage theft from international seafarers in Australian waters. These include closing a current legal loophole that allows foreign registered ships to conduct two trips between Australian ports without needing to respect the Fair Work Act or the Seagoing Industry Award, as well as strengthening inspection resources for the Australian Maritime Safety Authority and the Fair Work Ombudsman to ensure that existing rules are better respected. Mr Bray called on federal government agencies to act on the issues raised in the report and proactively enforce breaches of labour laws.
The exploitation and mistreatment of these workers by international shipping companies should be of serious concern to every Australian business and consumer, he said. The systematic theft of seafarers' wages and the mistreatment of a vulnerable, invisible workforce is a disgrace to our stated Australian values of fairness and decency in the workplace for everyone. Maritime Union of Australia National Secretary Paddy Crumlin said it was hoped the new federal government's commitment to establish a strategic fleet of Australian flagged and Australian crewed vessels would improve the standards for all seafarers visiting Australian ports. The systematic misconduct and abuse by these companies demonstrates how urgent the need for intervention has become, Mr Crumlin said. The ITF has been policing and enforcing the maritime labour standards of this country against a backdrop of intransigence and disinterest from the former Liberal government, as well as disinformation and obfuscation by industry PR representatives such as Shipping Australia Limited. You're listening to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News, broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. So back in 2021, when Anthony Albanese was the leader of the opposition, he used the expression enough is enough when asked about Julian Assange. However, since his election in March this year, it appears that Albo is towing the line. With a global solidarity action planned for October 8th, I spoke with Dave Fox from Bendigo Trades Hall Council about why this is so important. Yeah, so I'm here talking to Dave Fox from Bendigo Trades Hall Council and also AMWU organiser. We've decided to organise an action in solidarity with Julian Assange on the 8th of October to coincide with uh, yeah, quite a lot of other activities that are happening all over the world. So, Dave, why should we care about this or, like, what, what's got Bendigo got to do with, you know, Julian Assange? Well, I think it's not just Bendigo. I think it's Australia-wide everywhere. For a starters, he, he basically was given information many years ago and exposed it through his channel WikiLeaks about the war crimes in the and in Iraq at the time, um, and basically told the truth. And obviously now what it is, it's actually a threat to anyone that actually tells the truth. You step out of line, this is what's going to happen to you. And why we should actually give a care about this, because you don't just have to be a journalist. You could be a whistleblower, you could be anyone, and that means basically now we have to be concerned because now we've got a foreign power they basically orders our government around. They do anyway. Um, Who's this? Sorry? The US government yeah. and you know, Washington itself. Uh, and basically, yeah, uh, keep them along as in jail until we can get uh, the chance to extradite them to the US. Now, fact is, Julian hasn't done any crime whatsoever towards the US. He hasn't committed any act of treason, nothing. But he's still locked up there in Belmarsh Prison in the UK there. And uh, for what reason? And this is where we've got. This is why I think we have to be very, very concerned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's an Australian citizen, isn't he? Yes, he is. Yeah. Yes. 
So what what's the Australian government doing about it? Oh, well, far as I care, diddly squat. But, yeah, well, so far, I mean, regardless of what the previous government thought and said, we've got Albanese as Prime Minister, but nothing's been really said at all. He, he can do whatever in his power as Prime Minister, along with Penny Wong as our Foreign Minister, to get bring him back here to Australia. Don't they have mm. an obligation to do that? They do. As a, an Australian citizen? Yes, they do. Yeah. Mm. And so why do you think they're not... Or do you think behind doors, you know, they might be having conversations, but they probably just know that, like, geopolitically they don't have any power or...? Well, the geopolitics is part of that, uh, big time, and they basically, you know, receive the orders, you're going to try and step out of line with US foreign policy and its interests, you will suffer the consequences as well. But that goes against their duty towards the citizens of this country and... Julian is an Australian citizen, and they should have stepped in. They've done nothing for Julian. Yeah, nothing. It's kind of weird. How are the UK holding him? Well, they're, they're detaining him because the US wanted to appeal the incident decision. Um, he couldn't be extradited to the US because of his health reasons, yes. mental health. Yeah. They wanted to appeal to it to prove that they can look after him. And everything. Uh, you know, they've met all the criteria to look after him at yeah. the same time, which we all know. Let's face it, that is a big crock of shit. The whole mm. thing of him being in prison is causing this mental health decline. Yeah, and exactly. how long has it been now? Oh, like, that's really, I think, well, years. like 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and actually he's in maximum security yeah. prison. Yeah. Solitary with, confinement. Yeah, solitary mm. confinement. That's just ridiculous. Mm. And he's not a threat to anyone. You know, For someone, he's not a threat to the community. He's, uh, but they lock him in there for his own protection from whom? Uh, probably lock him away from any US authority. Assassination mm. attempts? Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Oh, my gosh. And mm. people like yourself and other activists have been campaigning in solidarity with Julian Assange for some time. So what can change or what can we do to, to see some change? I think we need mass pressure. On the yeah. ground, uh, it's there's no more excuses getting away, uh, allowing this to happen. And we know full well that we want the Australian government to step in now and and stop this and bring them back. And he should be entitled to live out his life, rest of his life as a free man, not being locked up in, in prison for nothing he's ever done wrong whatsoever. And it also shows you is a great injustice. It just shows you well the injustice system. Let's let's call it for what it is. You know, uh, what it's really about. It's not there to protect us for any of reasons. This is there to um, those who speak out. This is the way the true face of it. And you speak out. Expose the truth. This is basically teach a lesson to everyone else. Do it. And this is what's going to happen to you. So now do as you're told. And and what I can't understand too, it's all been proven. Like even with me, his mental health and his general physical health, why can't they just let him go in the community? Yeah. You know, but even in in the UK, he's not a threat to UK sovereignty whatsoever, or a threat to any UK citizen. No. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, mm. he's got a family as well, mm-hmm. a wife and two kids. Mm. And, well, just so inspiring to see what his family is also doing. And, mm. I mean, they're going all over the world mm. trying to raise awareness and doing whatever they can. So you think mass mobilisation so of Australian people or just mm. everywhere? Or like how well, can, it how has to be. Inter- we, it know? is international. Yeah. Uh, what, what's happening on Saturday the 8th is an international day of action. Uh, yeah, so what's happening? Well, in the UK, uh, it was 
triggered off in the UK. Uh, they're going to be people surrounding the parliament, basically linking hands or linking arms with a form of human chain around the parliament. Uh, obviously, there's protests and rallies in other cities around the world and other regions as well. And I believe there is something happening in Melbourne and Sydney and possibly Canberra. But I thought, well, look, let's expand this out to just confine it to the capital cities here in Australia. Let's also do something regionally as well. Because most Australians, pretty much 99.9% of them support Julian. Yeah. Now, they, yeah. This is crazy. Regardless if they agreed with him or not. Yeah, yeah. They, This is outright ridiculous. And yeah. well, I think people just want to know what they can do. And I think yeah. start getting themselves involved in these actions yeah. Uh, for a start, is start actually getting out there campaigning their politicians as well because they need to pull their fingers out and start doing something and get the momentum going and start winning it all over. And I think also the media has got to play some key yes, role in it. Yes. Uh, instead of just giving some lip service or half-hearted attempt, they've got to be serious. Mm. Those fair income journalists out there, I don't probably think of one. I mean, I know John Pilger's on side, yeah. but the others have got to be left in question. Well, if they're going to be fair income about a genuine independent journalism, they yeah. should be actually stepping, uh, coming on Stepping on board with this campaign. Yeah. Yeah, so what are the demands of the campaign? Well, the main thing is to free Julian Assange. Yes. It, it's, yeah. it, you know, no, he's not guilty of anything. He hasn't done anything. Free yeah. him. We've got to do this. This is, um, this is a serious issue. Yeah. And it's about free, uh, freedom of uh, speech, freedom of expression. Yeah. And uh, we can all talk about We may not like other things, but some people say out there. But if you start oppressing the information like that, yes. you know, Australia's heading down a very, very bad, uh, dark road here mm. and, and it'll take a long time to get out of it. Mm. Yeah. And what we're seeing is a complete tragedy uh, yeah. and a disgrace. It's actually a dark stain on our it history is. as well. It really mm. is. Yeah. So what can people do to join in the action? Right. Well, here in Bendigo, for the Bendigo region, we have a rally and vigil on the 8th of October, that's Saturday the 8th of October. We meet here at 11 o'clock just outside here at in front the of the Bendigo Hall. Trades Hall. Yep. That's 40 View Street, Bendigo. If everyone's wanting to know where it is, we will yep. march down street here down to where Rosalind Park on the corner there at Charing Cross. So they have banners. It's a good location with a lot of tourists in town over the weekend. They can see what's going on. And Obviously, look, we'll go for a couple of hours, I think, but it's quite important we get the message out there. Even yeah. More thought. This is going to affect everyone. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And what should people actually do to show the government that we want them to take action? Yeah, you know? well, they, they can actually go a step further besides joining us for that day. Yeah. Obviously, um, like I just said before, that lobbying and politicians really go hard on this. Yeah. And uh, not just writing letters but following it all up, yeah. even actually sitting in Parliament and, I don't know, look, I don't care, drop a banner across the Parliament in the public gallery, I don't yeah, care yeah. what they do. They, they can do a lot of things uh, to bring, raise this attention. But also, most importantly as well, talk to local media. Yeah. Because I think, you know, we, I'm sure they'll probably go, well, okay, yeah, we do need to start coming on board with this. You get the, um, and I think from the local level up, even there's some people in working in Murdoch's media agree yeah. that should be freed as well. Yeah, so, yeah. Mm, yeah. You know, start so, talking about mm, it. Yeah. yeah. And we, look, we've had people from all across the political spectrum agreeing that he needs to be uh, he needs to be freed. I, I mean, we've had people from the conservative side of politics who just going, no, this has just gone too far. Yeah, mm-hmm. because mm. it really is this freedom of speech thing and freedom of the press. Yeah. Yeah, mm. everybody should come down and join us. Bring your banners, yep. And, uh, yeah, you can also find more info on the Bendigo Trades Hall Facebook page. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah great. Got that posted up yesterday. Mm. Great. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for Stick Together this week. Thanks for listening and thanks to Dave Fox for speaking with us.
Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 0394198377 and leaving us a message. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. I'm Rebecca Mays. Catch you next time.